Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We, um, we're never very far in our teachings from the teachings and life of Jesus, but every Lent, we really press in. We use Jesus' life and his teachings as the starting point, and we dig deeper into his life and teachings than, than we do at other times. And this year for Lent, what we're digging into is the book of Mark. I love the book of Mark. Absolutely love it. Um, one of the things that we talked about last week with the book of Mark is how he, he puts these little Easter eggs throughout his gospel. And uh, if you're not familiar with the concept of Easter eggs, it's, um, Disney is a great example of this. So let me put that slide up here. What Disney does with, with these digital Easter eggs is they include something in their movie that you might not notice and unless you're really looking careful or if you go back and watch it more slowly. And so, for instance, Disney had that big movie, Aladdin. How many of you have seen Aladdin at some point? All right. In the movie Aladdin, there's this character, the genie, the genie. And in this scene, he's just doing some things really quick. And one of the things he does is he, he opens up a cookbook, and there is a crab in the cookbook. And it just happens really fast. But who is that crab? Sebastian from the movie Little Mermaid. And so they hit, hide these little things in there. And one of the reasons that Sebastian from The Little Mermaid is the same directors of Aladdin were the same directors from The Little Mermaid. And they didn't just put that in there. Let's go to the next slide. They put themselves in there. The guy on your left, your far left, that's a cartoon version of one of the directors. And then the guy to the, would be your right of Aladdin is the other of the directors. And so... What they do in a lot of different movies, they put these Easter eggs, these inside jokes or these references to something that happened in the past. They put these things in there that most people miss because you're going through it so fast. Well, Mark does this. We looked at an example last week. I want to show you another example this week. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Mark chapter 6. We're not going to spend much time in Mark chapter 6. I just want to show you this Easter egg that I thought was fun um, and this one's actually a double yoker. Do we have any country kids here? I was a country kid. You ever see a double yoker? Eggs? Sometimes if you go out there, it's very rare, but you find these eggs that have two yolks. This is actually a double yoker. Mark chapter 6. So, wow. Ooh, uh. All right. Um, <laughs> but the, the, I find this stuff fun. All right. Uh, I want to let you know, too, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one free today. Um, you probably you may have an electronic version already, but if you don't have a hard copy, I'd encourage you to get a hard copy also. There's some things you can do with a hard copy of the Bible that you can't do electronically, and you'll see that especially as we study chapter 2 where we're going to spend most of our time today. But if you don't have one, we have a stack of Bibles uh, that we keep at both of the entrances, and please take one free as a gift to you. All right, here we go. Mark chapter 6, uh, we're going to look at verses 45 through, what is that, 51? All right, here we go. Uh, immediately, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side to Bethesda while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to a mountaintop to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out in the sea, and he was alone on the land. And so he's up on the mountaintop, and he saw that they were making headway. What does it say? Painfully. They are having a hard time getting that boat across the sea, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, ah, which gets left out of the English translation. But, For they saw him and they were terrified. But immediately 
he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Now, if you miss this Easter egg, don't feel bad. I missed it too until I slowed down, pulled out some of my resources, and one of the commentators, actually several of them mentioned this. The first of the double yokes, I'll just touch on real quick. Mark, what he does early on in his gospel, he, he starts what is like we call often a new Exodus thread. He does a lot of references where Jesus is like Moses, only much better. And there's a lot of things about we, this is a new time where people are coming into to understandings of God in some new ways, new deliverance happening here. Well, in chapter 6 right here, if we can isolate the verse, 648. Let's isolate that from what we just read. Jesus came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. This verse in, uh, in Greek, that was the original language, has a lot of striking similarities to the language from the Greek Old Testament. Mark was writing in Greek. He probably read the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And in the Greek version of the Septuagint, along this new Exodus theme, Moses uses the same language that Mark uses to describe God passing through the sea. So it's just interesting, or passing by. But that's just one, and that's not the one I really want to highlight, because this other one I think is really, really cool. Let's put on the screen here Mark 6 and Job 9. First, we're going to put it up here in English. And again, in English, it looks similar, but not all that identical. In English, it says, Jesus was walking on the sea. He meant to pass, pass by them. And then in Job, it says in English, God trampled the waves by the, or of the sea. Behold, he passes by me. So it looks kind of similar, but take a look what happens if you put them in Greek. Take a look at this. I won't pretend to speak Greek, but these sure look an awful lot alike, don't they? And one is speaking of Jesus. The other is speaking about who? There's these subtle things that Mark does that you have to really slow down and take a look at, but this isn't coincidental. How do I know that? Because Mark just doesn't do this subtly. He just comes out and says it. And you're going to see today in chapter 2, he's declaring it, that this is true. I'd encourage you in your notes to write this down if you haven't already. This is from last week, but I amended the words a little bit to be a little more accurate. Mark makes a bold claim as he opens up his gospel, he makes the bold claim that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, he's Jesus the Messiah, and he is the divine son of God. And he makes this case through hidden Easter eggs. He also just comes out and says it. Let's take a look. We, we started in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Let's go back there just to get a running start here today. It says this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And last week we scratched the surface of this a little bit and we realized Mark, he loads it up. He loads this up. And in this tiny little passage, we found at a minimum these things that in the first three verses, Mark applies a new meaning to the term gospel, possibly for the first time in history. Mark makes the bold claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He makes an even 
bolder claim within this passage through what he does here that Jesus is God. And in these opening verses, Mark also connects the coming of Jesus to two Old Testament prophecies, one of which is a prophecy with comfort overtones, the other is a prophecy with judgment overtones. That's three verses in. And that's not everything. Immediately after this, picking up right with what comes immediately after this, the aforementioned messenger appears and he's dressed like a prophet. Anyone remember who he's dressed like? He's dressed like Elijah, the one who was prophesied to come to prophesy and prepare the way for the Messiah. And so we're just barely into this thing, and now the pace even picks up faster. All of this is in one through three, one through four. The, and, 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 and it picks up even faster from here. Before we get to the end of verse 20, Jesus the Christ is baptized by God. He makes a proclamation, God does, that will later be echoed by a Roman centurion. The prophet who baptized Jesus is imprisoned. The new exodus thread is started. Jesus is led by the Spirit to be tempted in the wilderness. Jesus launches his ministry, and Jesus calls his first disciples. How many disciples does he call? Twelve, and that's going to be really significant. We won't get to that today, but it's going to be really significant. So, before we landed on this title, Marked, for this series, one of the things I was playing around with was something with a docudrama theme. Because the book of Mark is like this epic that has been carefully storyboarded. And not because it's a story, but because there is so much truth to try to get in. And it is like this brilliantly crafted epic, except it's true. I tried to think, what is it like? It's like this. It's like taking all of the content from the three Hobbit movies and all of the content from the three Lord of the Rings movies and then pushing, pushing it and compressing it into a YouTube video that you could watch while you get your oil change at Jif Jiffy Loop. It's like that. It's taking all of this without losing the characters or the themes. It's amazing. Here's how one of my resources summarized the section we're going to look at today. Today we're going to look at chapter 2 and a little bit of first, chapter 3. One of the scholars says, actually two of the scholars says that, say this, the opening chapters of Mark are an artistic masterpiece. They are so well constructed that many readers will probably get Mark's point, even though not recognizing how he's done it. And if you'd like to get a portion of the types of things that we're missing, um, I would encourage you to get a couple resources to have on at hand. Uh, most of the stuff I'm giving you today I got from three sources. Um, ESV Study Bible, which you recommend all the time, and all these I wrote down in your notes. Another one is this little N.T. Wright um, commentary. You can see I marked a couple things in there. Um, and this is called Mark for Everyone. It's just a little commentary on Mark. And then this is a great resource. This one is the New Testament version. They also have an Old Testament version. Um, it's a background commentary. It tells you some of the context, the IVP. It's really a great resource. But this is where you can find stuff like this. It's really accessible. I didn't get this from seminary. It's just these great tools. You can, you can get these. All right. So there's some resources you can look at if you want to find these Easter eggs. Okay. Here we go. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to spend most of our time now in, in chapter 2. In fact, we're going to send just the first section of chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, open up Mark chapter 2. Now, one of the things I mentioned earlier that's great about having a hard copy of the Bible is what we're going to do right now, and that's to open it up and just to kind of look back and scan it. And if you scan chapter 2, you find there's four sections. I'm going to give you the word of the day today, and the word of the day is pericopes. These sections are called pericopes. It's a, it's a technical term for this. It's, it's, it comes from the Greek meaning section. It's a section, a kind of a self-contained little section of the Scripture. So if you look, if you just glance at it, there's four pericopes here. And it's interesting. I'd encourage you to write this down in your notes, what you see up on the screens there. 
each of these four pericopes in Mark 2, it contains a question that challenges Jesus' authority. So, four for four, four pericopes, four challenges, each a why question. There's the question, why does Jesus speak like that? That's what we're going to see today. Why, the next one in the next pericope, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then three, why don't your disciples fast? That's the third pericope. And then the fourth, why are your disciples doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? You see some confrontation happening here. These guys aren't asking these why questions to get more information. It's a confrontation. And that's another one of the threads that Mark weaves throughout his gospel, this this thread of confrontation. When Jesus appears, he confronts misunderstandings, and he confronts false teaching, and he confronts religious leaders, and he confronts governing powers, he confronts sinful practices, he even confronts demonic spirits, including Satan himself. So there's this confrontation theme, and you see it here, four pericopes, four challenges. Again, when it comes to the question why, is it okay to ask the question why? It's a good question. It's an important question. But you can ask the question why, and you can ask it as, I want to learn, or you can ask it as a challenge to someone's authority. And that's what's happening here. They're they're, they're saying, who do you think you are to say what you say and to do what you do? Here's a great quote that speaks to the issue at hand. Jesus was saying, apparently, on his own authority, that the kingdom was coming then and there. Where Jesus was, the kingdom was. And if there's any doubt in the matter, he was doing things that demonstrated it. And because these people were so locked into their whys, they missed it. They missed what God was doing in their midst. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to focus just on this first pericope. So, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through, uh, what does it go through, 17, something like that, 12? All right, 12. We're going to zoom in on this one. It's a familiar story to many of us, but I saw things in here that I'd never seen before. It's so fun when you slow down and you read and you dig in. And maybe you've seen all the things I'm going to point out today, but it's still my hope that the Holy Spirit's going to convict and and, and reveal and, and help you apply this fresh and new this Lent. So here we go. Mark chapter 2, verse 1 says this. And Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days. And it was reported that he was at where? Home. That jumped out at me. Home. It's been so beaten into me as of late that Jesus was homeless that I don't even remember if I've ever asked, when did that start? Now, we don't know for sure that he's at his house. It doesn't say that, but at least a surface reading seems to say that he's at Interesting. What's interesting to me about that is if he was in his house, it adds kind of a fun, whimsical piece to this whole story. All right, so he's at home. We don't know if it's he owns the house or not, but he's at home. And then picking up with verse 2. Many were gathered together so that there's no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Now there's another thread here in Mark, and that is a thread of growing popularity that Jesus started to get this popularity gaining and gaining and gaining and gaining and gaining. And so that's in there, and we see it here. Now there's so many people coming to see him, they can't even fit in the doorway. Picking up at verse 3, And then they came, 
bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. One of the things that struck me for a long time about this passage is that phrase, their faith. Their faith. This is one of the reasons we pray for others, right? Because God hears our faith. That's an important one to remember. Their faith. But here's that kind of whimsical thought that came to my head. If this is Jesus' house, it adds kind of a fun little lightheartedness to this. Because here's Jesus. He's at his place. And all of a sudden, the roof starts to rumble a little bit. And here are some people ripping apart Jesus' roof. And I just kind of picture him looking up, you know, watching this unfold. And they lower the guy down. And Jesus looks up at his holy roof, pun intended. And he looks down at the guy at this act of, you know, in purposeful, of purposeful vandalism. And he goes, dude, you know, your sins are forgiven. Don't worry about the hole. There's kind of that layer. That's just a thought. But what we do know is Jesus was doing more than that, right? And that what, that's what sets some people off. Because what we do know is that Jesus was making a sincere pardon for this guy's sins. That's a big deal. It set some people off. It set them off in a big way. They were missing the moment. I, um, I, one of the stories that I love to tell is the story of this guy, Mike Lundborg. He was at the church I used to be at. And, and uh, Mike is this great guy who's got all kinds of friends who are not church people at all, far from it. And he, at our church, they had this huge event we called the Passion Play, where hundreds and hundreds of people, full costumes, camels, donkeys, I mean, the whole animals. You, you come in in this massive auditorium, and here are the gates of Jerusalem. Many of you guys were in this thing. It's absolutely astounding, full effects, the whole bit. And, and the doors would open up, and there was heaven, and it was just, it was incredible. So Mike invo- invited one of his biker friends to come see this thing. And the guy's probably thinking in his head, little church play, right? So after this performance, Mike could kind of see the guy was a little shell-shocked from seeing this amazing passion play. And Mike turns to his friend and says, well, what'd you think of the, the play? And his friend goes, it was effing awesome! <laughs> Except he didn't say effing. <laughs> he just drops it. And see, I love that you can laugh. I love that you can laugh. I love that. Because that's our church, right? We want to have a lot of effing awesome moments where someone is so, like, astounded by this hole in the roof that, isn't that awesome? They love their friend so much that they were willing to go through extreme measures to try to get this guy to Jesus, right? Isn't that, isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? But there were people that missed that. They missed that Jesus himself could laugh about this, possibly, because Jesus said something that just set him off. He said, your sins are forgiven. He offered this guy a pardon for his sins. Picking up with verse 6, they didn't like this. At least some didn't. Some of the scribes that were sitting there were questioning in their hearts. Now, scribes, they're the experts in the law. They know the scriptures, right? So they're saying, they're questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but 
God alone. Are they speaking truth here? Yes. Who can? Only God can forgive sins, right? Here's one of those whys that we mentioned earlier. Why does Jesus speak like this? The only one who can forgive sins is God. Now, if we were a small group, it would be really interesting to spend some time asking what your whys are. Because we all have whys, don't we? We all have whys. The scribes had some whys. We have whys. I encourage you to write down your notes. Everyone's got whys. Those of you who were at the women's staycation, Laura was downloading a little bit last night. Alicia had a lot of whys. A lot of whys. We all have whys. It's natural to question why. This is a broken world. We're going to see things that just don't make sense. That it seems like God should step in here. You know? Or shouldn't have said that. We're going to have whys. But the scribes got so caught up in their whys that they failed to recognize what God was doing in their midst. Picking up with verse 8. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? And he gives a trick question here, right? Because these are both impossible things for people. This is like, which is easier, to climb to the top of Mount Everest wearing one of those sumo suits? Good luck with that. Or to deep dive to the bottom of the Mariana Trench wearing four life vests? Which is easier? He's basically giving him one of those. Which is easier, to forgive sins, which only God can do, or to heal this guy this way, which only God can do? And then he picks up, Jesus says, Picking up with verse uh, 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Don't forget that word home. Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose, and he immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now, before God did, before what Jesus did, what only God can do, Jesus used a term for himself, the term son of man. He refers to himself as a son of man. That you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is one of the reasons why Mark can say so much with so little is he uses um, a great economy of words. Because the son of man has a double meaning. Son of man can just mean, even in the Bible, it can just mean a son of a human. We were born of a human. But it also has another layer of meaning that goes back to the book of Daniel, an Old Testament book. And here's how N.T. Wright summarizes that use of son of man in Daniel. In Daniel, the Son of Man is opposed by the forces of evil, but God vindicates him, rescues him, proves him to be in the right, and gives him authority. In Daniel, this authority enables him to dispense God's judgment. Does the use of this term remind you of anyone in a certain chapter 2 of the book of Mark who's doing some things and calling himself the Son of Man? So again, there's all of this happening and unfolding, and instead of connecting these dots, the scribes are so focused on their why that they can't get past all of these things that are unfolding right before them. And the tension here that we see with this why, it builds in the next pericope with another why, and it builds in the next pericope with another why, and it builds in the next pericope and another why until we get to chapter 3 where we read 
this. This is chapter 3, starting with verse 1. And again, Jesus entered a synagogue, and there was a man there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that he might accuse him, or that they might accuse him. Okay, let me read verse 2 again. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. Do you you see the power of that right there? They're hoping that the guy gets healed. Why? So that his hand is better? No, so that they might accuse him. What in the world? And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to him, is it law to all these people? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? And they're silent. And he looked around at them with anger, and he was grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians, who were their enemies politically, against Jesus, how they might destroy Jesus. So hung up on their wise that they, they, they can't even rejoice in the fact that this guy's hand got healed and consider what might be going on here in their midst. And that reminds me of the time when I was a youth director in New Ulm, Minnesota, back in the day. And there was a high school kid named Tate who technically went to our church, but he never went to our church because he never came to our church. But he was on the roll, you know, the membership roster. He was technically a member of his church because his parents were or something like that. Well, this was 1992. And... Hardly anyone in Minnesota in 1992 knew what a snowboard was. Tate was a snowboarder. So he didn't fit in with our kids because he's a snowboarder. And they didn't even ski. It was 1992. And the popular kids in New Ulm were still pretty preppy. But Tate dressed like a goth Kurt Cobain. Get that picture in your head? This was New Ulm 1992. Our church had a pipe organ. Tate played electric guitar. So Tate didn't have a place at church, right? But then there's the 20-something youth director who's like, you know what? We can get Tate here. We're going to have a youth Sunday. We're going to have a youth band, and Tate is going to play lead guitar. So I went to Tate, and I said, Tate, we're going to have a youth Sunday. We're going to have a youth band, and you're going to play lead guitar. And Tate said, okay. And Tate came and played lead guitar, and it was great. It was awesome. But as I looked out at the congregation from my three-chord Chris perspective, um, I look out, and I could see there was a whole lot of people we're focused on the hole in the roof. And the hole in the roof in this case was Tate was wearing a hat. And oh, he was wearing a hat. And their why that they had that they couldn't get past, some, not all, some, their why was why would our youth director allow this kid, this punk, to wear a hat? Think about this. This is a church where we read pericopes every Sunday, right? This is a church where to be a member of the church, you had, to, you had to declare a personal faith in Jesus Christ who did what he did in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, 12. This is a church where we could trace our roots back to Pentecost when the Holy Spirit, our counselor and guide, was poured out there are still people who are so fixated on the hole in the roof that they were distracted from a very holy moment. They were so focused on their why that they missed the what. And so 
This week, when I was remembered of that story, and I was pointing my finger at all these finger pointers, pointing my finger at the finger pointers, I noticed something that I'd never noticed before in 47 years about this story that I'd grown up with in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I'd encourage you to write this down, and then let me explain myself here if you don't already see it. It is easy to miss the gospel in some of the stories about Jesus. It is easy to miss the gospel in some of the stories of Jesus. Was the point of this story, which is a true story about Jesus, was the point so that I had ammunition to point fingers at finger pointers? That wasn't the point of the story. In the story we looked at earlier, Mark 2, there is a layer here that is easy to miss. And it's more than an Easter egg. It is the Easter story. That's what's here. There's more in that first pericope than a testimony to the healing power of Jesus, as awesome as that is. There is more here than a lesson about bold faith and messy ministry, as important as that is. There's more here than an overt challenge to empty religion and blind eyes, as important as that is. The gospel itself is in the story. The gospel itself is in Mark 2. Because who is the paralytic that needs forgiveness and healing? Who is it? It's us. It's us. Did he need it? Yep. Did the tax collectors and sinners need it? Did the scribes and the Pharisees need it? Yep. Did Jesus' disciples need it? Yep. Did this finger-pointing at the finger-pointers person need it? Yep. We're all broken. We're all broken. You look into that mirror. We're all broken. We all stand in need of grace. We're all the paralytic. We are all unable to come before the Lord in our own strength. Isn't that true? We need the Holy Spirit, to bring us to that place. In our own strength, we are unable to come to the Lord. Whose actions brought us to a place where the impossible came possible? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. He brought us to the place where the impossible could become possible. Who brought us to a place where our sins could be forgiven? That was Jesus. And then who invites us to a home where sin and sickness will one day be only a distant memory? That was Jesus. You see what's going on here? We're the paralytic, and Jesus is that friend that we need. Wow. This isn't just a powerful story, true story. This is the gospel. And those with eyes to see are once again reminded in the most vivid of ways that Jesus of Nazareth acted on our behalf Jesus of Nazareth did the impossible, and through faith in Jesus of Nazareth, we can be made whole. Isn't that beautiful? That's beautiful. And in this story, we see our ultimate destiny, and that is of being completely forgiven and completely restored in imperishable bodies on that day. That's why when Jill was singing earlier about that In the River song, this is why we, 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 we do Lent. And this should be our week. This should be every week, right? It should be every day. But especially during this time, this is why we, 
we press in deep because when we really let that soak in, we put ourselves, we are the paralytic. We were helpless in our sins. We were dead in our sins. And Jesus brought us to himself so that we could receive healing. There's something that happens in us. And it looks different in different people, but there's something that happens when we really press into that deeper understanding of the gospel. We're so much less likely to point fingers, but rather just keep pointing to Jesus. As cliche as that sounds, isn't it true though? When we really understand the gospel, we don't have time to just be pointing fingers at each other. We open with a few examples of some Easter eggs from the movie Aladdin. And I'm going to close with probably the cheesiest sounding thing I've ever said, but you'll remember it. <laughs> All right? Remember the song that the genie sang in the, in the tomb or whatever, in the, the temple thing? You ain't never had a friend like me. You ain't never had a friend like me. Here's the cheesy thing that you're going to remember. A new life can start when we turn to Jesus and we humbly say, I ain't never had a friend like thee. I told you it was cheesy. But you'll remember it, especially if I say it again. <laughs> a new life can start when we humbly, humbly come before the Savior of our souls and we say, I never had a friend like thee. I want to encourage you, if you have anything that you'd like to pray for, there's a group of people that will be back there at that prayer station. They would love to pray for you and either introduce you to this friend or connect you with this friend or just join with you as friends and bringing your request before this friend. So I'd encourage you to consider that. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for sending your son. And Jesus, thank you for that act of obedience. Not just the act of obedience, but your acts of obedience that help us to recognize that you truly are a friend and a friend that we need because we can't even come to you in our own strength. But you call us and you compel us and you breathed out your Holy Spirit and you sent that counselor who turns us towards you and you made it possible for our sins to be forgiven and then you promise that you're preparing a home a home where we will maybe have this mat hanging up on our wall of our sins or our infirmities that we can rejoice in what you did and who you are so thank you for inviting us to come before you. Thank you for offering to forgive our sins and make us whole. I pray that every soul in this room would say yes to that again and again and again, fresh and new each day. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go forth, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you all. Right? Amen. Go in peace.